Welcome to We Can Be. I'm Phil Johnson, Senior Program Director of Environment and Health at the Heinz Endowments. And it is my pleasure to welcome today's guest, Joanne Kilgour, Executive Director of the Ohio River Valley Institute. The Institute was founded in 2020 with an aim of providing sound research for a more sustainable, equitable, democratic, and prosperous Appalachia. And that's exactly what they've done for the past two years. Joanne and her team provide facts for the often unchecked promises made to communities about their energy futures. They have been a critical point of well-researched information for in-the-news energy topics, including recent national discussions about carbon capture and storage and hydrogen hubs. Joanne grew up in Maine, earned degrees at Carnegie Mellon University and University of Pittsburgh, and has held leadership positions with Center for Coalfield Justice and Sierra Club. She has said that the Ohio River Valley Institute, quote, reveals surprising realities about our energy future. And I can't wait to talk about some of those realities with her today. Joanne Kilgour, welcome to We Can Be. Thanks, Phil, and thanks so much for having me. Joanne, tell us a little bit about what the Ohio River Valley Institute does. The Ohio River Valley Institute is a regional think tank that focuses on research and strategic communications for a more equitable, sound, and prosperous Appalachia. We engage in research and analysis that's geared toward helping to improve the economic and community-based outlook for communities throughout Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, and Kentucky. Hydrogen and carbon capture are being hyped as job creators and economic game changers by the same people who told us 10 years ago that the natural gas boom would produce job growth that didn't materialize. Hydrogen made from methane and carbon capture are wildly expensive technologies that would raise taxes as well as prices for electricity, gasoline, and anything else they touch. Oil and gas executives and their friends in Congress and state legislatures want our region to invest in these unproven and costly technologies to bail out their businesses, especially the gas industry, that increasingly can't compete with clean, low-cost alternatives. Their visions of thousands of miles of pipelines and massive underground chemical storage caverns would mean more drilling, higher prices, more pollution, few permanent jobs, and more people, especially young people and their families, leaving the valley. We need a different direction. The term hydrogen hub is one that has been making the news in recent months. Can you give our listeners a short description of what hydrogen hubs are and what are we being told they will do for the Appalachian region? You know, the term hydrogen hub is one that's somewhat confusing. There currently are no real concrete proposals for what one of these hydrogen hubs would look like. But in this case, what we're really talking about especially for southwestern Pennsylvania and the Ohio Valley, is the promise of a significant new build-out of oil and gas and carbon infrastructure. 
So for our region, any hydrogen hub is most likely going to be blue hydrogen, which means hydrogen that's created from natural gas and that has carbon capture application on top of it, meaning that some of the carbon is removed when the gas is burned. You know, this is something that would require not only more fracking and more supply of gas, but also a huge network of carbon capture infrastructure to accompany it. So what we're really talking about is a significant new complete build-out of infrastructure that would also require regulatory changes, changes to our legislative structure, tax increases, and by our estimation, an additional impact on ratepayers as well. These aren't cheap. The projected monetary cost of constructing hydrogen hubs across the nation including one here, ranges from about 170 to $230 billion. And that doesn't include significant operation and maintenance cost increases for companies. So what would such a system do to customers' energy bills? It would likely increase consumers' energy bills up to 25%, or on average, a $293 annual increase for a typical customer. So for many of us, we're dealing with really stretched thin budgets as it is, personal incomes that are not increasing at the same rate that costs are increasing. For a lot of families, $293 a year to add on top of what they're already paying for their energy bills could mean having to sacrifice other bills, groceries, gas, you name it. It's a significant burden. Another selling point has been that hydrogen hubs would provide new employment opportunities for communities. What does your research show about the amount of jobs hydrogen hubs would save in the gas and coal industries, and how many new jobs could it create? You know, one of the things that our research has been showing is that industries that rely heavily on GDP figures to justify their jobs projections have a structural flaw. There's no question that there would likely be some limited incremental jobs as a result of hydrogen and carbon capture infrastructure. But what our research calls into question is the idea that this kind of investment can see huge numbers of increases in the rate of jobs that we have in our local economy. So when we think about jobs as an indicator of economic health, often the GDP number and the jobs number tell really different stories. The thing that we can point to because we have a history is the fracking boom. So we can look back at the last 10 or 12 years of oil and gas development in the state, and we can see that the promised jobs boom just never materialized. So as there are hundreds of millions of dollars, in some cases, many billions of dollars created in GDP, most of that is landing outside of the communities that are dealing with the most significant impacts. What we're actually seeing is communities that are dealing with lower quality of life, loss of population, declining personal incomes, lower job rates than the state on the whole. And this is a trend that is consistent with extractive industries on the whole. If hydrogen hubs raise energy costs for consumers and don't create significant amounts of new jobs, would they at least significantly reduce global warming by capturing large amounts of carbon emissions? Our research says that 
not only are hydrogen hubs likely to be costly and not capable of delivering on the promise of significant job creation, but that they're also not a likely climate solution. Carbon capture technology is actually not new. There have been many decades of public investment in trying to develop carbon capture technology, and yet no project has been able to deliver the kinds of carbon reductions at scale or within their budgetary parameters that they've been promised. So I think we really run the risk that we'll see more fracking to produce hydrogen from oil and gas. We'll see more efforts to expend costly upgrades on carbon-emitting facilities without the promise that they'll really be able to bring those carbon emissions down. And we still have the other kinds of pollutants that these facilities emit that are not taken into consideration with CCS technology. It's a really challenging time to be focusing on real decarbonization strategies for the region and then to have this too-good-to-be-true sounding hydrogen hub and carbon capture infrastructure proposal that very likely could end up being costly, ineffective, and have real opportunity costs associated with it in the time and resources that are not devoted to real long-term solutions. Can you say a bit more then about how hydrogen hubs affect current incentives for clean energy development, including solar and wind. As examples increase across the country of thriving clean energy-focused regions, is our region being set up to fail. There was a recent report released by the Allegheny Conference on Community Development called Our Region's Energy Future. In this document, the proposal ended up having to give up on the 1.5 degree Celsius climate target in order to accommodate the oil and gas industry. So what that means is the solution that this entity is charting out for southwestern Pennsylvania is one that already says from the beginning we're not going to be able to meet even this very critical climate threshold. We're just giving it up because we need to keep space for expanding our oil and gas industry. And so that's an example, I think, of the consequences of a strategy like this, is that we say, while the rest of the country is trying to move on toward real ambitious decarbonization goals, our region can't do that because we are beholden to the fossil fuel sector, or we want to continue to accommodate an industry that actually hasn't given that much back and that has had a significant impact on our rural areas, on our statewide landscape overall. I mean, we see what's happening with all of the natural disasters, the flooding in Kentucky, many Pennsylvania communities that are dealing with significant impacts from high heat, and yet we're willing to give up this climate target when, in fact, when we look at where renewables are and how quickly the technology is developing to accommodate renewables and storage into our grid, it just doesn't make sense. There are many projections, even just if we stick with hydrogen, that green hydrogen or hydrogen produced through renewable resources will be cost competitive with blue hydrogen by 2030. 
So here we are, you know, we're more than halfway through 2022. Many of these investments are not going to come into place for years to come. And by the time that they're built out, it's very likely that they will not be cost competitive and already sort of obsolete technology because renewables are just developing and developing in a more cost effective way so much more quickly. This isn't the first time, is it? We've heard the pitch that lots of new jobs and increased income for communities in our region would come from fossil fuel energy exploration. You're right. This is a pretty familiar pattern. And often it coincides with a need to find new markets for their product. So here we are in at least the third iteration of this. Back at the beginning of the shale gas boom, there was this big promise, you know, 200,000 jobs are going to be created. We're going to see a revolution. You're not even going to recognize Pennsylvania after this industry comes in. In reality, the actual jobs numbers that delivered were off by an order of magnitude. Even though that playbook arguably did not work and did not deliver, we saw that exact same strategy used again to pitch the Appalachian storage hub and the petrochemical renaissance. And in many cases, it's even the same politicians and the same companies who are involved in these proposals. U.S. Steel, the energy company Equinor, and Shell say they've agreed to a non-exclusive cooperation agreement to advance a collaborative clean energy hub in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia region. That, they say, would generate new jobs. So having a hydrogen hub for steel and for cement and for the concrete industry, number one, makes them more competitive. So that would continue to help jobs here in southwestern Pennsylvania, which is important to us. So again, we see a failed playbook that's being revived now to pitch hydrogen hubs. And on the back end, we could pretty much predict the story. No increase in quality of life for residents in our region, no real reductions in the kind of climate pollutants that we need desperately to address, significant costs borne by taxpayers and ratepayers, and not enough of an increase in jobs or personal income landing locally to really have the kind of impact that's been promised. The so-called playbook always seems to have a piece connecting to public subsidies. Can you talk a little bit about what a public subsidy is and why the industry seems to really need public subsidies in order for its plans to work? You know, when we think about a public subsidy, what we're really saying is there's an industry that we value so much that we're willing to put taxpayers' hard-earned money to either attract or make their economic model viable when it wouldn't necessarily be on its own. So basically to say, we're going to give you the best deal to come here and we're going to make your project that might not be economically viable on its own, more so economically viable by giving you public money. It's challenging because not the people of Pennsylvania, but our decision makers, our policymakers are conveying that attracting this kind of business, propping up the fossil fuel industry is more important 
than other proven ways to invest taxpayer money or support industries that have real long-term promise and sustainability. Any thoughts on why so many communities continue to believe these promises, these repeating promises, even when history shows that they do not come to fruition? We want to trust the people who are giving us solutions. If someone comes to you and says, here's a problem that I know you have and that's a shared experience across your community, and I have a solution for you. A big challenge that we have is creating the kinds of critical thinking and tools necessary to be able to analyze solutions. Is there a way to see whether or not the structure of this kind of solution is actually capable of doing what I'm being told it is, you know, and then I think there's some instances where there's anecdotal evidence that is sometimes contradictory to what the actual data and trends might show. And so if you, for example, have a neighbor who leased their land for fracking and they're one of the few people who made significant amounts of money through royalties, that single anecdote might give you a very different predisposition to believe what's happening with the industry as opposed to wanting to dig deeper into looking at the trends and talking to all your neighbors and seeing if maybe they had a different experience. Maybe they lost their water supply. Maybe their farm animals got sick. Maybe they were in constant litigation with the company. And then, you know, here we have a neighboring school where we have a lot of incidents with public health emergencies and rare childhood cancers. And if those kinds of stories are not told in a comprehensive way, it can be easy to just rely back on the individual anecdote. And if we really want to achieve the goals that we have for our families and to create the kinds of communities that our children are going to want to continue to grow up in and raise their children in, that we have to kind of take that step back and really critically analyze what are the real numbers saying and is that the investment that we want to make. The Hydrogen Hub proposals suggest that the health and quality of life risks are minimal, if they are mentioned at all. What is the reality of that suggestion? Our friends at the Environmental Health Project recently put out a statement on the potential public health impacts of a hydrogen hub proposal. And I take them to be much more expert in the field of being able to analyze and convey what the public health impacts are likely to be. There are some pollutants that will be continuing to impact the people living around facilities, even if some of the carbon is being captured. And that's a significant public health impact. Or in the case of blue hydrogen, if there's additional oil and gas extraction happening to produce the hydrogen from natural gas, then we have a significant amount of information about the negative health impacts from fracking. Not only living near fracking, but living near pipelines, compressor stations, all of the other infrastructure associated with the development. There's a significant and widespread public health impact from the extraction of oil and gas. And that's only likely to increase if we see a greater demand for shale gas 
through the creation of blue hydrogen. As you've worked in this region for many years now, Joanne, do you have thoughts or insights about what it takes for a region such as ours to cope with decades of these environmental threats? And in some ways, how has it defined our region? This region is certainly defined by a history of extraction. There are some positives to take out of that. And one of the positives is a real sense of the value of our resources and of hard work. So, you know, a lot of the history of oil and gas extraction, coal mining, that's often not told is the labor history. And I think, you know, that has a lasting cultural impact because then we see that even outside of the extractive industries, that kind of ethic, that work ethic, that community ethic is still there and is itself a resource. So I think as we talk about trying to see a new, more sustainable vision for how our region can move forward after the extraction, after extractive industries. One thing that we're left with that hasn't been taken out of this community is that strong sense of place and that strong value of hard work and a commitment to trying to make the place that you live and where you value the land and value the resources better for future generations. My hope is that as we can move forward toward thinking about real, sustainable, long-term solutions that can support our economy, support our families, maintain more environmental integrity, support better public health outcomes, that we'll still retain this very strong sense of place and commitment to community. And I think once those things come together, the future for the region is really bright. Sometimes it's easy to forget that the carefully researched data, not to mention the political back and forth that environmental issues often have, is rooted in real-life consequences for our country. There's a part of an op-ed you wrote for the Pennsylvania Capital Star that eloquently reminds us of that connection. Could you read a bit of that? Sure, I'd be happy to. I recall those community members who kindly served me coffee made with bottled water because their wells had been compromised by the then new fracking industry. Gifts of homegrown fruit that ripened despite the adjacent coal ash disposal area blowing a thick dust over all the adjoining properties. And donuts shared with retired mine workers as we stood in the cold, demanding the benefits they earned by putting their bodies on the line to line the pockets of their corporate bosses. How important is it that on-the-ground work in helping us realize that we can have a better future than fossil fuels provides? I think the on-the-ground work is really essential. The higher up the work becomes, the more abstract. And it's very hard for people to operate from a point of abstraction. But when we're talking with community members and we're sharing information in both directions, right? Like, I learn a lot when I'm out in a community talking to people who are living with the day-to-day experience of oil and gas extraction, coal mining, being near a polluting facility like a power plant or a factory. And my hope is that I can also provide some data to help 
what I say substantiate their lived experience. I think to me, that's kind of the sweet spot of being able to chart a new path is the coming together of data, information, analysis, and lived experience, because it's very hard to discount both of those things. Sometimes you could discount someone's lived experience as, oh, well, that's just your perception, or you're just one person, and that's not the big story. And sometimes you can discount numbers and analysis by saying, yes, but you don't know what it's actually like to be on the ground here. But when those two things come together, it's incredibly powerful, and it's very hard to say, oh, this person's lived experience that's actually backed up by data, how, how can you refute that? You know, that's a big part of what we're trying to do with the Ohio River Valley Institute is provide some of that analysis and some of the more theoretical foundations for the lived experience as a way to start a new conversation and at least back up a conversation that many people who've been living really on the front line of these industries have been demanding for a long time. Following that point, can you maybe just briefly speak to the reception of the Institute's work, that formula that you figured out where data and lived experience combine to inform a community and a decision process in a society? Maybe talk a bit about the reception you've gotten from from media, from decision makers, from community members. I have been pleasantly surprised by the interest in our work. You know, we're relatively new. This is just our second full year in operation. And yet we've developed some really strong relationships with reporters, community members, elected officials, other decision makers, other people in positions that are often referred to as the civic elite with universities and companies that share an interest in sustainability. And to me, that has been such a powerful lesson, even from where I sit as the executive director of this institute, is just seeing how much of a hunger there is for this kind of work. There's so much interest in what the data says and what the analysis says, but in the presentation of that from a really grounded regional lens. If we're successful in continuing to convince more people of that, that could mean some real possibilities for new kinds of economic development strategies, new kinds of policies that support people living in frontline communities, support community-wide economic development, and really start to see some localized benefit to people who are you know, living, working, and raising families in this region. Joanne, these real-life consequences where you're in the living rooms and visiting and working with community residents, it must take a level of compassion and, and dedication to do that. Can you talk about what that's like? You know, Phil, I feel like as a philosophy major, you'll probably appreciate this, or at least I think you have a background in philosophy. I do. You know, I've been motivated in all of my work by the idea that I want to live in a world that is the best possible world as if I was born into the worst position. So what kind of world would I want to live in if I was 
the least well-off person in that circumstance. And that has been a really motivating factor for me in trying to humanize every possible policy decision that we're engaged in, to think about what would the impact be on people who are already in the most vulnerable position? Is this going to be a net improvement or is this actually going to have some pretty significant consequences? And I think in order to do that kind of policy analysis and in order to understand what that impact would be like, you have to be willing to experience life through someone else's eyes and to be there in a way that's really genuine and open and without any kind of assumptions. Everything that we put out through the Ohio River Valley Institute, every conversation I have with an elected official or another community member, really understanding in the back of my mind, how is this going to affect the family that's living next to this fracking pad? Or how is this going to affect the retired coal miner who's now living next to this coal ash dump? Trying to operate from a point of openness and understanding is just really important to me because I believe that we should be working toward a world that we would want to be in if we were born into it in the worst position. For listeners that are wondering what they can do to help improve their environmental future, what are the one or two things you would tell them? I think engagement is always a key element in whatever way that means to you as an individual. So talking to their church group or talking to their cohort of moms who are bringing kids to school and taking kids home from school every day, all the way up to things like becoming a community lobbyist and regularly meeting with your elected officials. I think being open to contentious conversation is another thing that is really important. If we were all starting from the same point, there would be no conversation to be had. But the reality is that we all have these incredibly nuanced lives and coming together with an openness to constructive dialogue, I think is really important. Not shying away from people who may have a different perspective than you do, or maybe starting from a different point. And I think that's true, not just at the individual level, but also with institutions. Like, I'm really interested in seeing our institutions engage in more constructive dialogue. It's hard out there, right? People are working so much. People are dealing with pandemics and threat of eviction and energy burden. It's a really, really difficult time. So I think engagement in whatever way that's possible for you as an individual is so special. But then I also think it's incumbent on all of us who have connections to institutions to encourage our institutions to take action and our institutions to be willing to engage in contentious, often difficult dialogue with the goal of ending up in a place that, you know, we may not have come into a a conversation thinking this is in the best interest solely of my organization, or this is in the best interest of me as an individual, but this is in the best interest of the collective. The name of our podcast is We Can Be, and we like to end each episode with this question. 
What do you think we as a community, country, and world can be? We can be compassionate problem solvers. We have a lot of really challenging problems ahead of us that need creative problem solving. And that if we approach that from a compassionate stance, we're very likely to make some significant and really powerful headway. So we can be compassionate problem solvers.